Okay, thank you very much. Let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16. As we're working our way towards uh, our series, our new series, we've got a problem here today. We have to work on that. Uh, as we work towards our new series on uh, Hebrews, we've got a couple more sermons to go. And I want to go back to Numbers. Uh, we uh, missed a couple of stories in the book of Numbers that we want to go back and look at because these are very pivotal in understanding the people of Israel uh, that, uh, that the Hebrew uh, writer of Hebrews is going to be re- referencing over and over. And so as we do that, we go back and we'll start with chapter 16 in just a moment, looking at some overview situations. Uh, Paul Tripp, that most of you probably know about, wrote these words, God's primary goal, primary goal is not changing our situations and our relationships so that we can be happy, but changing us through our situations and relationships so that we can be holy. And very few people care a bit about being holy. If you want to have a non-starter conversation, uh, go to work or go to your neighborhood or wherever you are and talk, say, let's talk about holiness. Uh, you're going to get a lot of blank stares and you might even get a lot of ridicule as well, especially when you leave the room. Very few people want to talk about holiness or purity. They could care less about that. Sadly, a lot of Christians probably could be in that category. But God's overall objective with the nation of Israel was for them to be a holy people. We'll see that when I'll preach one sermon on Leviticus. And he calls on them to be a holy people because he is a holy God. And he wanted them, the goal of the Israelites as they went into the land of Canaan was to, to, to demonstrate the holiness of God. They were to show the people in this godless place uh, that uh, the pagan gods they worshipped, the idols that, were, that they followed, the, the life that they lived was, was nothing real, that the gods that they had were of their own imagination. And these gods uh, was made in their own image because it was of their imaginations. And God is telling them there is one true God. And he made us in his image, not the other way around. And this one true God is, is going to be demonstrated to the world around them as they go in by their, their holiness, by their being set apart to follow God, to live for God, and to demonstrate the true God that they are missing. True, the true God existed. Israel's mission was to let the world know that, to demonstrate what God could do with lives that are transformed by the very power of God. And so they needed to show this world that their God, the true God, was not like the pagan gods. That the true God was righteous and just and loving and gracious and kind. Uh, But he's also a God who is demanding obedience. A God who was to be obeyed. A God who was to be submitted to and followed. He had given them very detailed laws. So when we go through the first five books of of the Bible, especially uh, the uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, we see the details of all these laws, all these rituals, all these uh, things that they were to follow. And it's very detailed, very, very much there to show that God was, was different than all the deities around them and to show the, the world that the God's people were different than all the people around them. And that was to be their, their job. Leviticus, as I just mentioned, said in chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, that they are to be a holy people because he's a holy God. So that is their mission statement. That is what they are to be. That is what they are to do. Unfortunately, the people of Israel defied God almost from the beginning. And the story of the Old Testament is largely a story of how they defied him and did not fill out the mission statement that God had given them. And so the question that comes to us is why? Uh, They are blessed people that have been brought out of the land of Egypt. 
They have been brought out by miraculous happenings on the part of God. They've been set free from bondage. They have been promised a new land. Uh, they're, be, they're going to be taken there for God to set up the nation of Israel with them and for them. And yet they, they stumble at every step of the way pretty much going forward. And as we think about that, as we look about at that, we have to wonder why is it that they, this happened? What is the problem? And the problem boils down to two general things that we find throughout all the Old Testament about Israel. They refused to submit to God. They didn't like his authority. They didn't want his authority. They wanted to do their own thing, and so they would not submit and they would not obey. And the second thing is they loved impurity. Called to be holy, they loved impurity. Called to demonstrate the very holiness of God, their whole, uh, their whole uh, lifestyle demonstrated just how much they loved impurity, how much they loved sinfulness, how much they loved corruption, and how very little they truly loved to, to live a life of holiness that God had called them to. These two great stumbling blocks, these two great challenges to, to living out their mission statement are demonstrated very well in two stories that we'll look at today. In chapter 16, we have the challenge of God's authority. And we find that in the story of a guy named Korah. In verse 1, Korah is a, is a Levitical, a part of the Levitical priesthood. He is a Levite. He's not a priest. He's not in Aaron's uh, lineage, but he is a, he's of the spiritual lineage and uh, the leadership of Israel, and he is a Levite. Two of his buddies are Dathan and, and Abiram, and they're not Levites, they're from the tribe of Reuben, but they all take action, and here's what they do in verse 2. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, the congregation are, uh, the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is there in their midst. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. This is a pure power play. Uh, these men are stepping up. And apparently, if we look at verse 10, it drops on down. Are you seeking the priesthood? Apparently, Korah wanted to become the high priest. He wanted to usurp the authority God had given Aaron and say, I will be the high priest. And these other two guys would apparently replace Moses and be the leaders of Israel. And so they're trying to usurp the authority of God. God had, God had handpicked and chosen these people, Aaron and Moses, to lead the people of Israel, both spiritually and, in, and politically and militarily. And they are challenging all of that. They are refusing to follow the Lord and to obey Him. Matter of fact, in verse 11, uh, Moses makes it very clear. Therefore, you and all your companions are gathered together against the Lord. It wasn't just against... Moses and Aaron, it's against the Lord. And so when they were challenging the authority of God's appointed leaders, they were in essence challenging the Lord. And therein lies the heart of their great problem. As we, as we move on through the story a little bit, verses 4 to 7, Moses said, okay, that's enough. We're going to have a showdown. Well, it's, it's a good week to do this as cowboy theme we've had for VBS. Uh, I played, them, I played for the leaders one day, Rawhide's song. You remember the Rawhide? I, I think that would have been... Somebody needs to put that to Christian lyrics. I, I, I'm not sure on how they do that, but I, I'd like to see that. But uh, this is a good theme. We're going to have a showdown. Remember the gun, gunfight OK Corral? Well, Moses said, let's, let's, have a, let's have a showdown. Let's come together. Verse, verse 5, he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, who has been set apart as God's leaders. 
and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he has chose, and he will bring near to himself. Do this, bring the censers of yourself, Korah and all your company, put fire on them and lay an incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom God chooses shall be the one who is holy. You've gone, too, you've gone far enough, you sons of Levi. He said, meet me tomorrow in the valley and one of us is not coming out alive. Sounds like Clint Eastwood, doesn't it? Okay, they're, they're, not, uh, they're, they're, they're going to shove a showdown. Who, who is on God's side? Who is God favoring? Who is God appointed leadership? Moses says, enough is enough. Let's have a showdown. Let's find out what is going on. And so they come to do that. But, but the two guys uh, that I mentioned a while ago, verse 12, Dathan and Abiram, they, don't, they will not come to the valley. It says in verse 12, Then Moses said a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. Now here's why. I want you to know verse, four, verse 13. It, it, is it not enough that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into the land with milk and honey. You have not given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses is very angry. I know we're all weary of the, all the spin and lies that we hear in our media and in our, from our politicians and from all sorts of people who are trying to direct us, all these influencers and stuff like that. How wearisome it gets to have everybody take pieces of data and twist it to their own purposes. We, we're, I know we're all weary about, with that, especially today. But that's been going on, folks, since the Garden of Eden. Remember a, a man... Uh, named Adam and Eve, who listened to a snake, uh, who was Satan, who twisted the word of God so terribly that it brought about the fall. It's been going a long time. And it's going on right here. Look at this story right here. Look, look at what these guys are saying. You, you, you promised to bring us out of a land. You brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. That's Egypt. Remember Egypt? That the land may have flowed with milk and honey, but they didn't get any. They were slaves. They were in bondage. They got junk. But their, their memory is, oh, how, how good was the food back in Egypt. And you brought us out. And you promised to bring us into the land of milk and honey. But you haven't done it. It's your fault, Moses. But how did they forget that the reason he hasn't brought them in is because of their own rebellion? He brought them right up to the door of Cana. And they backed off and said, we will not go. They, they've conveniently forgot that and now are blaming Moses and Aaron for their own failures. That's typical of blame shifters that the world is, has plenty of, right? And so they won't come up. We drop down to verse 19, and thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So here it comes. They gather up at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord appears at the front of the tabernacle. This is the fifth time in the book the, that this has happened. The fifth time that the glory of the Lord has appeared before the tabernacle. And every time it has led to judgment of the people. And now it's, not, it's going to be the same on this one this time as well as God judges the people. Now I'm going to skip a lot of the dialogue for, for sake of time and, and the storyline. Drop down to verse 31 and look at the results. And he finished speaking all these words, and the ground that was under them, under Korah and his gang, opened. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah, and their possessions. So the earth just opened up and swallowed all of them. 
We drop down to verse 35. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. It, it, so the fire followed that as well. So God has spoken and God has made it very clear that uh, these people have defiled him and he will not allow it. He will not let this continue. And as interesting as this is, it's far more interesting when we get to verse 41. Because wouldn't you think, after you have defied God and the showdown has taken place and God has opened up the ground and killed all the rebellious people and sent fire on top of them as well, wouldn't you think that they would get the point? You know, if after church, uh, I, I have some disagreement with a handful of you, and I say, let's go out in the parking lot and see who's going to open. The, if the parking lot opens up and swallows you, then you'll know I'm right. Okay? <laughs> Unfortunately, it could go the other way. So I'm not, I'm not going to take that chance. But you would get the point, wouldn't you? That God is mad at these people. He's going to judge these people. And so he takes it. it so, right. So they got the point, right? They're going to, they're going to realize they have to follow God. They can't do this. Or at least for a while, Right? But, verse 41, the very next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. <laughs> all those people that were consumed were God's people, and you destroyed them. These people are deluded, aren't they? They're, what's wrong with them? They apparently believe that Aaron and Moses have some magical charms, some power in which they opened up the ground themselves and they sent down the fire and God had nothing to do with it. Well, God did have something to do with it and we just jump on through down to verse 49. We find God sends a plague among them and when all the dust had cleared after about a 24-hour period, about 20,000, about eight, uh, 15,000 of the Jews had died because of this rebellion. And that settles it down for a little while. To these people, the word of God was not his authority. It was an optional choice. You can obey God if you want to, but you don't have to. And, we, and they didn't want to. And therefore, they paid the consequences of that. I read a book recently called The Wisdom Pyramid. Good book. And the author of that book says this very simple statement. We are doers of the word because we're lovers of God. I like that. We're doers of the word because we are lovers of God. The opposite is true. We don't obey God because we don't particularly love him. It always goes back to our heart. always goes back to what we love. And these people did not love God. They loved themselves. And they rebelled against him. Now let's go to chapter 22 and look at another story. This one's a better known story. Almost everybody knows this story. Chapter 22. These people simply did not want to live a holy life. And to prove this, we're given a story that almost everybody knows about, Balaam and his donkey. The donkey usually gets top billing, uh, but the donkey is just a minor feature in the story. The uh, craft ladies this week made me a, a, a donkey. It's a little pole donkey. I almost brought him up here to show you. I thought it might be disrespectful. I didn't know. I was going to talk to the donkey and, and have him talk to me because this donkey talks. Right? Well, let's go on and see what happens. Uh, the Israelites now are on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, east side of the Dead Sea. They're going up the backside of Canaan, and they had just defeated two powerful Amorite nations represented by two kings, Sihon and Og. And I love that name, Og. I thought about naming one of our boys Og. Uh, 
That that would have been a cool name, a biblical name. How could could you go against that, right? But chapter 21, uh, verse 1, we're uh, we're looking at Moab. They're they're camping in the plain of Moab. Now, Moab, you remember, they're descendants, they're kind of relatives of Israel. They're descendants from Lot, a nephew of Abraham. And because of that, God had placed a, a stamp of protection upon them. And when Israel came into the land, they were not to touch Moab. They were not to bother Moab. But the Moabites didn't seem to understand that, and their king Balak, in particular, doesn't get this, and so he is nervous that Israel is going to wipe them out. But he has an ace up his sleeve. He has a guy he thinks can whip, Balaam, whip Israel, even if he can't, and that's a guy named Balaam. So let's look at verse 3. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was, was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, How is this horde? Now this horde will lick up all that's around us, and so forth. Look at verse 5. So we'll send messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, and he w- we'll bring him in, and he will be able to curse these people. Verse 6. Now therefore, please come and curse his people for, for me, since they are too mighty for me. And he says, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he who is cursed is cursed. So his hope is, is in Balaam. Balaam's going to be his silver bullet, so to speak. He's a prophet who apparently has an amazing amount of power. And he's going to send for Balaam to rescue him at this time. Now, as we go through here, Balaam's a hard guy to pin down. For much of the account that we... And by the way, this is one of the longest, continuous stories in the Bible. And so God wanted us to know it's here. This is not just a, a, a neat story. It's not just something we, uh, we made for children in flannel graph. It's, a, it's God's story. It's a huge story, and there's much here. And at first it seems like Balaam's on page with where he ought to be, but we'll find that Balaam is a deceiver. And remember, our Lord himself said in Matthew chapter 7 that there would be people who could uh, who, who call out in the name of the Lord, who can prophesy in his name, who can cast out demons, who can do various works and miracles, and yet he says, I never knew them. And so it's possible to have great power and not know the Lord at all. And that's what seems to be the case with Balaam. But let's, let's follow him for a while and see what happens. He does have true power, but I believe that power is coming from the devil, just as we're told in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, that um, the Antichrist will have that kind of false power. Balaam is up front. Verse 8, he says, and he says to them, spend the night here, and I will... Um, Bring word back to you as the Lord speaks to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. So they came and asked him to do this thing. He came back in verse 12 and said, do not, God says to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Verse 13, so Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. That's all great, isn't it? God says don't go. He says I will not go. You offer me great riches. But I will not take them. Instead, I will obey God. And that sounds like a really good thing. Off to a good start, right? But then we, we drop on down. Balak will not give up, verse 15. He says, let's try again. I'll send some more dignitaries. And they can come and try to persuade you to come. And this is where it gets a little hairy for, for Balak, I think, or for Balaam. So he, as he send these people, verse 19, now please... Uh, you, he said to them, you also stay here tonight, and I'll find out what else the Lord will speak to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to you, call to you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. 
And so he goes back to God. Now, we'll see in a moment that Balaam has excellent theology, and he is defying what he knows about God right here. So there's something that seems to me missing. God at first said, don't go. Then he says, yes, you can go. But then God is angry with Balaam. Why so? Because Balaam knows that God does not lie and God does not change his mind. God has already told him once, don't go. He didn't need to tell him twice to not go. But he, he defies that. But at first, right here, it looks like all is well. But apparently this is a test. To test to see if Balaam will obey God or if he tries to work out around God and find a loophole. So we finally go into the story that we're most familiar with, verse 22. He's on his donkey now. He's headed up to Balak. But God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. And the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on one side and a wall on the other side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, and she pressed herself against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to go to turn to the right or to the left. And so we see that the Lord has come out to kill Balaam for his disobedience. Verse 27, Then the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, so she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. Then it gets real interesting, right? This is the part everybody knows, a talking donkey. Okay, and the donkey opened his mouth and, and said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, I am your donkey on which you've ridden all your life to this day. Have I ever been accustomed to do so And he, to you? And he said no. Now, first of all, there's only two talking animals in all the Bible. The first one was the serpent in the, in the, in the uh, Garden of Eden, which was probably Satan who had taken on that form, or at least Satan had, had uh, indwelt that snake. So that's the number one. Number two is this donkey here. Now this is an odd story, isn't it? But it's not a fictional fairy tale. This is not the Chronicles of Narnia. This is not a Disney movie. This is not even the wonky donkey. This, this is a real story, a real truth. And so he begins to talk. What an, what an odd thing. But odder still is he, Balaam talks back. Isn't that an odd thing? You start talking to your donkey, and you're carrying on a conversation. I mean, there's something wacky here. You know, no wonky donkey, be a wonky, wonky Balaam, maybe, I don't know. Now, I know some of you animal lovers talk to your animals, and you think they understand you. You, you have your dog sitting there, and you're talking to him, and you're explaining things to your dog, and the dog's looking at you with bright eyes and wagging his tail. And uh, the whole time they're doing that, you're thinking they understand. All they're thinking is, maybe they'll give us a treat. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll take me for a walk. They don't understand a word you're saying. And I don't want to get into what cats are thinking. <laughs> because I don't want to offend any cat people here, you know. Years ago, I used to preach to my dogs. I used to preach my sermons out loud. And I would had my dogs at my feet and I'd preach to them. And uh, it, it was very interesting. Uh, they never repented. Uh, they, they, never, they never said, we're sorry for getting in the garbage. 
for messing on the floor, throwing up in the living room. Never repented of anything, even though I preached my heart out to them. Pretty much they slept through the sermon, which, which pretty much lined me up for coming to church, you know. In case a few of you dozed off during the process, you know, I wasn't I wouldn't too offended. My dogs were able to handle it. So, so I, but they never really talked back to me that I know of. If they did, I was, I was, there was something really wrong with me, right? So this is a truly odd story, and yet it's true because God did a miracle again. It's not hard for God to have animals talk if he wants them to. I don't know what's going on with Balaam here, but apparently he gets the point. And he now sees this angel in verse 31. And in verse 34, he knows that he sinned. He said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I, have not, I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it's displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the Lord said, okay, go ahead. And this time he did send him on. The next day he comes to Balak. And I'm going to kind of work through this quickly. In verse 41, Balaam takes him on another place. Uh, to try to see if there's another place where he could curse the people of Israel. And uh, he can't. Verse, and we drop down to 23.8. Here's what Balaam says in his prophecy. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? Yeah, I can't curse them. God hasn't cursed them. In verse 13, uh, Balaam tries again. And, and, and in verse 19, Balaam says, I can't curse them. And here's why. Look at his theology. God, this is some of the best statements about God in the Bible. Spoken by a false prophet. He said, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of the man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless, and what he's blessed, when he's blessed, then I cannot revoke it. God is not a liar. God will not repent. Balaam knows his theology. Well, as we, as we pre- progress through, though, we find that Balaam. Balak still won't give up. Verse 27, he tries again. And uh, with the same result, this time chapter 24, verse 9, at the end of verse 9, Balaam says this, Blessed is everyone who blesses you and curses everyone who curses you. That's straight out of Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham at that time. God blesses those who blesses Israel and curses those who curse Israel. And so now it's getting, but it even gets worse. Balak tries again, and now verse 17, here's what he says. He's going to twist the knife here. He said, A star shall come from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Seth. And then he goes on to talk about Edom, and the Ammonites, and the Canaanites. He's saying, look, Israel will destroy you ultimately. That is not what Balak wanted to hear. That is not the message He's been trying to get all the way through. And so we close out the story that we have here in this passage of Scripture. Balaam goes home, and that's all we know about him in this very large story. But we begin to see what happens in the very next verse that doesn't mention Balaam. Just a few days later, a few weeks later, whatever, while Israel was remaining at Shittim, that's the same place they were, the people came to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And they invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and their people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to to Baal Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Now here's the thing that's happened. Balaam could not curse Israel because God had blessed them. He could not do that for Balak, but here's what he could do. He could teach Balak how how to so corrupt and so pollute 
the people that were supposed to be holy, that they would be ruined. And that's exactly what happened. Go over to chapter 31, verse 16. We, we jump several chapters when we get to verse 16. It says, Behold, this is a different context, but look at Balaam here. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam was able to tell Balak how to corrupt the people of Israel. And how were they going to do that? Go back to chapter 25. They started intermingling with the daughters of Moab. They started uh, having sexual favors with them, perhaps marrying some of them. Verse, verse 2, they start sacrificing to the gods of Moab, the, um, the Baal, uh, Baal and others. Uh, they started participating in their, their rituals and their worship services, which were pure uh, sexual orgies and so forth. And next thing you know, they are worshiping the very gods that they are sent to defeat. What a sad a picture. And we question, how in the world can this happen? Why did they do this? First of all, they had not defied the authority of God. And the second thing they have done here is they, they are chasing after the impurities of life. They don't want to be holy, quite frankly. They, they like their sins. In all sins, for the moment anyway, have some kind of a enthusiasm, some wonderful up, up feeling that eventually turns on us and pollutes us and destroys us. And they like that. And, and keep in mind they're, they're, what was going on with the religious worship services. Israel had come from, uh, to Mount Sinai and they received the Ten Commandments and the laws of God, right? And, and then they travel on. They get all this stuff. And by the time they get to, uh, to almost going into the land, they have this religion that is wrapped around sacrifices, that are wrapped around rituals, that are wrapped around laws they are to keep. The worship services didn't even have music until the time of David, some 400 years later. And so there's a very, very straight-laced uh, faith in which obedience was, and holiness was the key. What did Moab have to offer? Sexual orgies, drunkenness, drug-induced frenzies, immorality of all kind, in the name of their gods. They could worship Baal and live like this. And that's what they wanted. They wanted the impurity that went with that kind of life. They had no interest whatsoever in living for the Lord. And so as we see the picture going forward with Israel, this is their, their problem time after time after time as they move that direction. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about what's happened here. If there's a, there was a movie out a few years ago called Click. Uh, and it was about a, about a guy who had a special TV remote where he could push that remote and see the future and see what was going to happen in his life as he progressed further. What if you had one of those? What if you had a little remote in which you could push it and know what the consequences or the results of how you're living now would be in 30 years? What would be how the choices of, that you're making now, the priorities that you have now, the thoughts that you have now, the life you're living now, if you could look at that 30 years down the road and see where that leads, wouldn't that be kind of cool? But God didn't give us that. God didn't give us that. What God gave us is his scriptures. The Old Testament is replete with telling us the very things that we don't know about ourselves, but we know about Israel. Here's how they lived. And here's the consequences that they suffered. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, once again, 
told us he gave us these things for our instruction that we should not do these things. And that's why he gave them to us. And that's why we, that we should be learning from that. And, and if we don't, then we'll pay a terrible price in the process of doing so. How you and I should learn from that. You know, the VBS week is always wonderful here at church. I always love it, the, the camaraderie, the children singing. And it's just a joy. If you've never come to one of our VBS uh, meetings or during the week, you ought to take off work and show up, uh, especially toward the end and see what's going on. It's, it's marvelous. This last uh, Friday, the very last song they were singing, and all the kids in full, full enthusiasm, and I was standing right over there, and I, I stopped singing. I started looking around. I was just looking at this whole area filled with well over 100 children singing their little hearts out, saying, God is great. Oh, that was a joy to see. But I thought back over 50 years of VBSs, and I prayed for those little kids. I, I said, how many of these kids 20 years from now, 30 years from now, will be saying God is great? Amen. That I want to live for that Lord and Savior that I sung about all week. Oh, I hope most of them do that. I hope all of them do that. We have to look at our own lives here and say, well, Lord, you have laid before us so many things. You have given us these examples that we might not be like Israel. He has called them to holiness. He's also called us to holiness, to follow him. But holiness is only possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. No one can become holy because they want to. No one can become righteous because they want to. Our righteousness are as filthy rags. It's only because Jesus Christ knew we were unholy, knew that we were hopeless, and came to the cross and took our sins and died for us and has offered to give us the free gift of holiness, righteousness, if we will come to him, turning from our sin and turn to him by faith alone. And so all of EBS this week was not just about great stories and wonderful enthusiasm. All that we do here at the church is not about those things either. It's about the living for the, the holy God who sent his Savior to die for us on Calvary, to pay for our sins, that we might live holy now and for all eternity. And if you don't know that Savior, please don't leave this room today before you come to him. Father, we come before you now thanking you for your word, for your truth, even for these stories, Lord, that are so familiar to us, especially Balaam. But Lord, may they not become commonplace. There's, there's, a, there's lessons here for us, Lord. There's things you wanted us to know. These are not just neat stories. And I pray, Lord, we gather at least some of that here today. So we lift these things up in your name, and I pray, Lord, for any who do not know you as the Savior and Lord, or any who are playing games with you today, Lord, and are not walking with you, that this might be a day they'll turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.